And Father, as we now turn our, our minds and our hearts to your word, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would remove any impure motives we may have for coming to your word. We pray that you would overcome any obstacle, any pride that would prevent us from understanding your word. Father, our desire is to see Christ in the scriptures, to know Christ through the scriptures. And so we pray that today you would accomplish that purpose in accordance with your will. And we pray, Lord, that, uh, that we would have pure motives in coming to your word, that we may understand, and not only understand, but that we may believe and obey. And we pray that Christ would be glorified through that, even during this time. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 37 uh, sorry, 39 to 47 today, and uh, it'll be our final sermon in John chapter 5. So John chapter 5, verses 39 to 47. You know, one of the strangest phenomenon that, that I've come across as a Christian, and, and that you are inevitably bound to come across as a Christian is the reality that people can know what the Bible says, they can read the Bible, they can memorize the Bible, and yet still refuse to repent and believe in Jesus. And it's important for us as Christians uh, to memorize Scripture. I, I would never say uh, there's no need to memorize Scripture. Of course there's a need to memorize Scripture. In fact, Scripture instructs us to memorize Scripture. And yet, it's possible, we have to keep this in mind, that it's possible for even atheists to memorize Scripture. And in fact, there are several atheists out there who have large portions of Scripture memorized better than most Christians do. There's a well-known atheist uh, who, who used to be known in Las Vegas for going around town and hunting down Bible study groups that were meeting in coffee shops. And what he'd do is he'd try to shipwreck their faith by asking them difficult questions and pointing out what he believed to be contradictions in the Bible. See, he had read the Bible several times. He knew what the Bible said. Uh, and I'm confident that while there are many Christians out there, men and women alike, uh, who would be able to give him some solid answers and, and to refute his arguments, I'm also sure that there would probably be a greater number of people whose faith got shaken by an atheist who knew the Bible better than they did. Richard Phillips tells the story of a young man whose parents brought him to college and personally introduced their son to the director of a campus ministry. And the young man almost immediately introduced himself to this director as the Bible verse memorization champion of his state. Uh, he, and he started to boast of how he had memorized almost the entire book of Hebrews word for word, verbatim. And that's pretty impressive, right? I mean, we would say, wow, that's a, that's a pretty tough thing to do. That's impressive. But when the ministry director asked this young man what he found to be most intriguing or most challenging about the book of Hebrews, the young man had no idea what to say because he had never actually studied the book of Hebrews and he had no idea what it actually taught and the sad conclusion of this story is that this young man who boasted of his ability to memorize the Bible fell away from the Lord within just a couple years of having gone away to college. Now you might ask yourself, I ask myself, how is that even possible? How can it be that somebody can, can read the Bible, that somebody can even memorize Bits and pieces or, or, or significant portions of Scripture, perhaps, and yet refuse to submit their lives in faith to Christ. So the passage that we're going to be looking at today indicates that there are actually a number of reasons that this happens. 
So we've spent two months in John chapter 5, and as we study the final passage of this chapter, we should remember that the first half of this chapter involved Jesus healing a crippled man uh, at the pool uh, of Bethesda uh, on the Sabbath, which, of course, infuriated the Jewish leaders. Uh, And the second half of this chapter has shown Jesus making a formal and very thorough defense of his actions, probably in the setting of a gathering of the Sanhedrin. Uh, So Jesus first defended his actions uh, by claiming to be one with the Father, by claiming to be God. In fact, he made that claim several times, seven times, in rapid succession. Uh, From there, Jesus went, went on to defend his actions and his authority to do what he did by examining the testimony of three witnesses, all of which were given by the Father. Do you remember what those three witnesses were? The first we saw was John the Baptist. Um, The Jewish leaders acknowledged him as a prophet. Uh, Jesus tells them that they even celebrated in his light for a a time. Uh, But here's the thing, here's the kicker. He testified of Christ. And so if they believed him to be a true prophet, um, okay, that would have been good, but they didn't believe what he said to be true. So were they saying that John the Baptist was a false prophet? So they were condemned by the fact that they rejoiced in his light for a time and yet rejected his message. The second piece of testimony was miracles. The Jewish leaders knew that Jesus had worked miracles. They knew that he had healed this man on the Sabbath, right? I mean, nobody disputes the fact that, that, that he did that in this, uh, in this passage. And in fact, one of the Pharisees named Nicodemus um, had already acknowledged to Jesus just a couple chapters ago, if you remember. He came to Jesus and said, quote, We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs. He's talking about miracles. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So the first piece of testimony was John the Baptist. The second piece of testimony was the miracles. The third piece of testimony was the scriptures. And of course, when Jesus talks about the scriptures testifying to him, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And it's the scriptures that play the role of the star witness, so to speak. It's the last witness that he introduces, and uh, it's uh, the one that he spends the most amount of time on. Um, They seem to have the most uh, persuasion, at least with these Jewish leaders, Um, but Jesus saves that testimony for last. Uh, the scriptures not only testified of Jesus, they not only justified Jesus, but they also had the greatest power to condemn the Jewish leaders. After all, if there was one thing that, that Jesus and these religious leaders agreed on, it was that the scriptures were given by God. And yet, there was a significant point of disagreement between Jesus and these Jewish leaders. And that point of disagreement was regarding the purpose and the message of the scriptures. So having spent two months studying John chapter 5, today we're going to conclude our study of this chapter by considering the testimony of the scriptures and how it is that a person can read scripture and memorize Scripture, and even know Scripture, and yet still persist in their rebellion, still continue to to deny who Christ is, still refuse to repent and put saving faith in Jesus. So the point of this passage is that we must do more than read and know the scriptures. We must see and understand that from beginning to end, they teach us about Jesus and they direct us to put our hope for salvation in him alone. Let me say that again. We must do more than know or memorize the scriptures. We must see and understand that from beginning to end, they teach us about Jesus and they direct us to put our hope for salvation 
in him alone. A reading of scripture that directs our attention, our thoughts, or God forbid, our praise to someone other than Jesus is a misunderstanding or a misapplication of scripture. So the warning for us in this passage is this, studying the Bible, memorizing the Bible, doesn't necessarily guarantee a person's salvation. And the scribes and the Pharisees are proof of that. So Jesus explains how this is so. He's going to give us three reasons that people miss the message of the Scriptures. It starts with the person's attitude. Let's look at verses 39 to 42. Jesus continues his defense, saying this. He says, You search the Scriptures... Because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you. That you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Now to just summarize what Jesus is saying here. Turning to the scriptures for the sake of gaining knowledge turning to the scriptures with the intention of using any knowledge that you can gain to exalt anyone or anything other than Christ will prevent someone from understanding what the scriptures teach. What does Jesus say was the motivation, the the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees for coming to the scriptures? He's saying it was all about you. And, And it was... It was so that they could boast in what they knew, what they had learned, what they had memorized, what they had read and understood, or so they thought. See, these scribes and Pharisees knew what the Bible said. They they took pride in the fact that they memorized huge portions of the Scriptures. So what went wrong? Well, based on what Jesus says here, it's evident that they had the wrong attitude. To be more specific, they viewed knowing the words of Scripture as an end in and of itself. It wasn't a means to an end in their mind. That's the right view. The right view is that Scripture is a means to an end. That end being knowing and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, it is these that testify about me. They testify about Jesus The Jewish leaders missed the message of the Bible because they were so consumed with exalting themselves. They were so consumed with getting the letters and the words right that they missed the message. They missed the heart, the spirit of the text, you might say. You might say that they were distracted by all the details. They were consumed by by knowing things like the number of words that would be found in a book, finding the word that was exactly right in the middle of the book, and so on and so forth. Does that sound familiar to you? Because the crazy thing is, we've actually seen kind of a renewed interest in this sort of thing in modern times. Uh, Those of you who are maybe around my age, you know, old in other words, uh, you you may remember that in the 1990s, as technology was, was taking off, one of the types of books that started showing up more and more in Christian bookstores was related to so called Bible codes. Uh, and, and here's how it worked. Somebody would plug a Bible verse or a passage into the computer and have the computer look at, you know, for example, every sixth letter or seventh letter or, or the first letter of every word, uh, you know, things like this. And the assumption was that there were all these hidden codes in the Bible, all these hidden messages in the text of Scripture. The problem with that, I mean, there are a lot of problems. Uh, in fact, there were books that were written about what, a, what kind of problems arose from this. But the, to, to put it in a nutshell, the problem with this is that scriptures were given to the church in order for us to understand it. The messages that you'll get from Bible codes aren't something that the author originally intended. Uh, why would God deprive his people of every message within the Bible for the better part of 2,000 years. And in fact, neither Jesus, nor Peter, nor Paul, nor any of the apostles, nobody ever referenced any of these codes. So you're saying that you have a better understanding of the Old Testament scriptures than Jesus did because you plugged the, the Bible into a computer and got some kind of message? 
that's very problematic. It doesn't make any sense at all to say the very least. Uh, but another manifestation of this very same thing is those who read the scriptures, uh, for example, so that they might know what's going to happen in the future. Uh, they, they want to prepare themselves for, uh, for persecution or for whatever may come in the future. And I'm not saying, by the way, that, scriptures, um, that the scriptures don't tell us anything about the future. What I would say is that if your motivation, if your attitude for reading the Bible is to prepare for the future, like so that you can be a hoarder and, and prepare for uh, persecution and things like that, you won't be prepared unless your idea for preparing for the future is repenting and believing in Jesus today so that whatever may come, you are safe and secure in his hands. Now we've read the end of the book. We know that Jesus reigns. He wins in the end, but only God really knows what's going to happen between now and then. But these mistakes, uh, these, these wrong attitudes are really the same mistakes and wrong attitudes that the scribes and Pharisees were guilty of. Uh, focusing so much on the details that they missed the big picture. If you can imagine standing before the most beautiful work of art in the world, this beautiful, exquisite painting worth millions and millions and millions of dollars, and as you stand before it, you're not even looking at the picture, you're looking at the frame, and you're getting caught up with all the dimensions of the frame and the color of the frame, and you walk away and you realize, huh, the, the frame was really great. I don't know what you guys are talking about as you're talking about how beautiful that picture was. What picture? There was a beautiful frame there. I mean, we'd say that's really silly right? Uh, we, we would, it would be like saying uh, that we love the institution of marriage, but then failing to love your spouse. What good is it to love the institution of marriage if you don't love your spouse? And Jesus wanted them to understand that he's not just making these claims about himself to impress them. See, the scribes and the Pharisees Learn the scriptures so that they would receive the praise of others. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from men. In other words, he doesn't need man's approval. He doesn't need man's applause. The testimony of scripture about Christ was sure and sufficient. So they should have honored him, but what they did was dishonor him by refusing to come to him and receive eternal life. And yet Jesus has a perfectly good understanding, a perfectly thorough understanding of why they won't come to him. He says, I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. What a terrifying, terrifying thing for them to hear if they understood who he was. How is it that people can read the Bible, they can memorize large portions of the Bible and yet remain unconverted? One of the reasons is because they don't love God. That's what Jesus is saying there. They love themselves. They love the praise of others. They love accolades and, and receiving glory from men. And thus they approach Scripture with the wrong attitude. See, turning to the Scriptures for the sake of gaining knowledge with the intention of using that knowledge to exalt oneself or, or anyone other than Christ will prevent a person from understanding what the Scriptures teach. See, the problem with this kind of attitude is that the Bible itself isn't what we worship. The Bible itself isn't the object of our worship. The Bible itself uh, isn't the center of our focus. The purpose of the scriptures is to testify of the person and the work and the glory of Jesus, but for a reason. And that reason being so that we may see him and believe in him so that we might be saved by him. Our desire whenever we approach scripture must be to know and see Jesus and to deepen our faith in him and to strengthen our obedience to him so that we may grow in being conformed to his likeness. So friends, why do you read the Bible? Why do you listen to sermons? 
What's your motivation? What's your attitude when you read the Bible? Do you do it so that you can look like a better person? You know, because you think that that's, that's what a good Christian does. They read the Bible. So if I want to be a good Christian, I better read the Bible. Or, or do you do it so that you look good in front of people? I mean, what's your reason for reading the Bible, for studying the Bible, for memorizing the Bible? Do you do it for the sake of knowing Christ? We must come to Scripture with the right attitude, humbly seeking truth, willing to believe whatever it says. See, a person's spiritual maturity isn't measured by how much Scripture they know. Rather, a person's spiritual maturity is measured by how willing we are to believe the Scriptures and to surrender in faith to Christ. So the first thing that Jesus has pointed out here is that they approach the Scripture with the wrong attitude. The second thing that he points out is that they read it for the sake of confirming their own personal interests. Look at verse 43 with me. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another man comes in his own name, you will receive him. See, Jesus didn't come as this social revolutionary who sought to free ethnic Israel from Roman occupation. That's what they wanted. And and that's what they expected because that's what they wanted. That's why they had hoped and expected the Messiah to, to do that because that's what they wanted. And if Jesus had come with an agenda that fit the desires and the interests and the aspirations of the scribes and Pharisees, if he had come promising earthly power and authority to the nation of Israel, they would have welcomed him eagerly. But that's not why he came. That's not at all why he came. And this is why he was rejected. Jesus came in the name of of the Father. But if Peter Pumpkinhead came in in the name of Peter Pumpkinhead and was in agreement with what the Jewish leaders wanted, they'd have been happy to have extended the hand of fellowship to him. I mean, it's historically proven that many false messiahs came in after Jesus in their own name, uh, even well into the second century, and that if these false messiahs were promising a revolt uh, and, and freedom from Roman occupation, the Jewish leaders were 100% on board. So why didn't they receive Jesus when he came in his father's name? Because it wasn't in their interests. They wanted worldly power, worldly freedom. And they were so preoccupied with that, they completely missed their need for spiritual freedom. They didn't realize that the Messiah's purpose wasn't to bring earthly freedom to ethnic Israel. They completely missed the fact that they were slaves to sin, which was much, much more serious than having their land occupied by Rome. So why didn't they receive Jesus when he came in his Father's name? Because, again, they didn't love God. They didn't love God. One commentator notes this. He says, quote, They did not really love God. They loved their own ideas about him. End quote. Now, that might not sound shocking to you because you know something about the the scribes and the Pharisees. You know that they were hardened in their unbelief. Uh, But we can be quite sure that hearing that would have been very shocking to them. I mean, we're talking about people who were extremely self-deceived. If you would have asked them if they loved God, their answer would have been, of course I do. And, and they, they, they demonstrated that. They, they thought that they were, they were living in accordance with his law. They proved their love for him. They proved their zeal for him by demonstrating zeal for God's word, zeal for worship in the temple, zeal for the Sabbath. But here's the thing. They weren't worshiping the real God. And so, their zeal for all this stuff, it was all an act. They didn't receive Jesus because they would not receive the Father. They would not receive the Father because they didn't love God. 
Make no mistake, friends, we are capable of doing the exact same thing. In fact, there's a whole movement going on within the American Christian church that is built on the premise that if we just appeal to people's interests, they'll come. If we, if we just offer something that appeals to the interests of the unregenerate person, they'll show up week after week. And part of the package there is the idea that if the church were only a little bit more like the world, we'd attract people from the world. That is just a horrible idea. If you think about it that way, we need to become more like the world so that we can attract the world. Where do, where do you see that in Scripture? Where do you find a basis for doing that in Scripture? You don't. You don't. It's not in there. This, this isn't a bait-and-switch operation. If we use worldly means to draw worldly people, what's going to keep them coming week after week? What's going to happen to them when they're confronted with the truth that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The idea that we should find out what's going to appeal to the unregenerate interests of unregenerate people in our community and then offer those things. That's what Jesus is attacking here. When, when this is how a person comes to God or comes to the Scriptures, seeking fulfillment or seeking confirmation of their own personal interests and ideas, it will not produce legitimate saving faith. We must expect Scripture to challenge us. See, these men did not want to be challenged in what they believed. But we must be different. We must come to scriptures expecting it to challenge us. And if we have a right understanding of ourselves, if we understand how depraved we are in the flesh, we'll also realize how desperately we need our personal interests and ideas to be measured against scripture, challenged by scripture, and obliterated by scripture. If we understand how far removed from God our personal interests and ideas are apart from Scripture. We've got to be hungry for a challenge, eager to be changed, eager to believe what it says. The scribes and the Pharisees knew the Scriptures, but they didn't know God. First, because of the attitude they took in approaching Scriptures, and secondly, because of their desire to basically have an echo chamber to, to welcome those who confirm their own interests and ideas. The third reason, the final reason that Jesus gives is pride. Look at verse 44. He says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Jesus has really taken the axe to the root of the problem here. He's, he's really honing in on, on what's underneath their rejection of Jesus. This is the problem at the whole root. Pride. Pride. These were men who had sought to exalt themselves and to be exalted by others, and as such they treasured and they sought and they pursued the approval of man and not the approval of God. So let's be very clear about this. If you have the disapproval of God, it does not matter if you have the approval of man. And conversely, if you have the approval of God, it doesn't matter if you have the disapproval of people. See, Jesus is talking to people, to men, to leaders who loved the approval of man. They're completely unlike Jesus in this sense, and they're completely unlike anyone, for that matter, who has ever risked everything for the sake of advancing the kingdom of God. Why did all the martyrs die during the Reformation? Why did the martyrs die? Because they sought the approval of God over the approval of man. Can you honestly say the same thing about your life? that you would rather have the approval of God than the approval of man. It's an important thing to have. We, we know, in fact, that there, was, uh, that there was multiple times, there were multiple times when Jesus went after the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, talking about how they loved the approval of men. One of those is found in Matthew chapter 23, verses 5 to 7, where Jesus said of the Pharisees, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. 
in an age of social media, by the way, how likely are we to do the same thing? They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. That's what motivated them. That's why they did what they did. Not because they wanted to please God, but because they wanted the approval of man. And throughout human history, this has been a grave danger, a a terrible tendency for people to fall into. It's so easy, and in fact, we could even say it's so natural to enjoy the approval of people. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, at what cost? At what cost? The result is the tendency to fear man instead of fearing God. If you simply fear God, there's no need for you to fear man. There's no need for you to fear anything else if you just fear God rightly. But let me ask you today, which do you fear more, man or God? Because the one you fear, make no mistake about it, the one you fear will be the one you serve. The one whose approval matters more to you will be the factor that shapes your life and your decisions. See, friends, there is a cost for being faithful. And and yes, that is becoming increasingly true in our day and age. There is a cost for being faithful. One of the realities that I've recently become aware of in conversations with other pastors is that by ministering faithfully in our day and age, a pastor is going to render himself unemployable if he is faithful to the text of Scripture. He will be unemployable in the secular market. What do I mean? I mean that while the culture drifts away from biblical values, the faithful minister who continues to stand on the Word of God faithfully is going to have a tough time finding a job anywhere else. And if they're doing it, even if they're, if they're doing it, even to the extent that they are holding a message in the Bible that offends the culture, what company would dare hire you? Because the employer knows that your employment with their company will result in trouble for the business. There's a cost for being faithful, and it's not just for pastors, it's for you too. It's for everybody, every Christian. There's a cost. The question that we have to ask ourselves is whether we seek the approval of man or whether we seek the approval of God because you can't look for both. You can't serve both. If your answer is that you seek the approval of God, you'd better be willing to bet that it will cost you something. It might cost you dearly, but in the bigger picture, it will cost you much less than seeking the approval of man instead of God. In the big picture, it won't cost you as much as seeking man's approval, being faithful to God. It's going to cost you either way, but the cost of seeking the approval of people is far, far greater because it won't change the fact that you will have to give an account for your life one day before him. Do not let pride prevent you from seeing the scriptures rightly and believing in the one to whom they point, the Lord Jesus Christ. So does your study of the Bible, here's an important question, does your study of the Bible lead you to greater humility or to greater pride? Humility or pride, it can do both. Studying the Bible can can do either one to a person, as, as we see in our passage today. But do you see, when you read the Scriptures, do you see that you have done nothing good on your own? Do you see that by nature you never would have sought God? You never would have desired God? Do you see that you were as helpless to walk spiritually as the man at the beginning of this chapter was to walk physically? 
Do you see that apart from God's grace, apart from God's work, you were one of those piles of bones in the valley in Ezekiel's vision, and that there was nothing that you could do to live again? It had to be entirely a work of God? When a person understands these things, see, it doesn't inflate the ego. It humbles a person. It doesn't fuel pride. It deflates pride. It causes us to be humble because it renders us incapable of boasting in anything within ourselves. It renders us incapable of boasting about anything but the Lord. The pride of the flesh, the inclination that we have to see ourselves as having at least a little bit of good within ourselves, it entices us toward religious hypocrisy. The flesh wants so desperately to believe that we're capable of pleasing God on our own. And and that's what these scribes and Pharisees exemplify. That's what they demonstrate for us. The flesh wants so desperately to believe that we are better than these scribes and Pharisees, right? But we're not. We're not. We, we, We have no right to look down our noses at these scribes and Pharisees as if, huh, those guys are so lowly. I'm not like them. No, it If we're any better off than they are, friends, it's only because of the grace of God. Because if it were something other than the grace of God, guess what? We'd have something to boast in. But we don't. We don't. It's entirely the work of God. Jesus has shown these men, these scribes and Pharisees, that there are three main reasons that they have not believed in him. Three main reasons they have rejected him, even though they had spent their lives reading and studying and memorizing the scriptures. So why did they refuse to come to him that they may have life? Because they had the wrong attitude? Because they sought confirmation of personal uh, interests and ideas? And because they were so prideful that they sought the approval of man instead of the approval of God. There's a wonderful story toward the end of Luke's gospel in which two disciples encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They had come from witnessing the crucifixion, and as they walked along the road, their hearts were filled with despair and hopelessness. And Jesus meets them on the road and concealing his identity, preventing them from recognizing him, he says to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And Luke tells us this. He says, and they stood still looking sad. One of them named uh, Cleopas responds to Jesus saying, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things that have happened here in these days? And he proceeds to tell Jesus about how Jesus had been murdered, and as he died, so died the hopes and the dreams and the aspirations of the disciples that Israel would be freed by their Messiah. But then Luke tells us this when we get to verse 25. He says, And he said to them, Jesus says to the disciples, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, Luke tells us, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Once again, this tells us that Jesus Jesus is the central, overarching message of the entire Old Testament. We see this first in the prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ's birth, uh, some of which are, are, of course, relevant to the season that we're entering into right now as Christmas is right around the corner. Uh, A couple quick examples. The Old Testament tells us that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, Another example, uh, the scriptures tell us that his birth would take place in Bethlehem, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But there are far, far more prophecies in the Old Testament that actually pertain to Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Uh, we're told in Zechariah 9.9 that the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. In Psalm 41 verse 9, we're told that the Messiah would be betrayed by a friend. In Zechariah 11.12, we're told that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10, we're told that the nails, uh, we're told that nails would pierce his hands and feet. And yet Psalm 34 verse 20 tells us that none of his bones would be broken. Isaiah 53.5 tells us the purpose of his death, writing, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. The Old Testament scriptures revealed how, he, how we were going to be healed, how people were going to be healed by him, by Messiah by our sins being laid on him and him being crushed for our iniquities. But Psalm 1610 tells us that Christ's body would not undergo decay. He would be raised from the dead on the third day before decay could set in. So friends, the testimony is clear in the Old Testament. The Old Testament points us to Christ through prophecies all over the place. But there are more ways than that. We also see him in types and shadows, things that, uh, that foreshadowed Christ or were pictures of Christ beforehand. Uh, Moses, for example, interceding on behalf of the Israelites before God as God is ready to, to pour out his wrath on the Israelites who are worshiping idols. Moses steps before him and intercedes for them. That's giving us a foreshadowing, a typology of Christ as an intercessor. Uh, David was a king, foreshadowing uh, Christ as a faithful king. The ark and the flood uh, was also a typology. It was a picture of Christ rescuing his chosen people from God's wrath. See, every detail of, of, of the tabernacle, for example, was also in some way or another pointing to Christ. And this is what we see just over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, that Christ is in the shadows. There, there are typologies everywhere. So we see him in prophecies, we see him in in typologies and and foreshadowing, and third, we see him in the ceremonies prescribed by God in the Old Testament. Even the ceremonies pointed to Jesus. Uh, The the Levites, the, the, the Levitical priests, were to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, showing us not only our need for a high priest who offers the ultimate sacrifice for sin, but also showing us, reminding us, every time there was a sacrifice, that the wage of sin is death. See, every time one of the Israelites would have sinned, the first thing that would have entered their mind or should have entered their mind is, oh no, blood is going to have to be shed for the sake of atoning for this sin. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was filled with symbolism which pointed straight to Christ. The high priest would enter the most holy place one time per year to make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Which people? Was it for everybody? No, it was only for those within the camp. Only on behalf of God's people, foreshadowing the extent of the atonement. So the the high priest who would go in would put on clean, holy garments, reminding everyone of the purity, the, the utter and, and uh, complete righteousness that the Messiah would have. Then the high priest would take two goats, both of which would be spotless. They would be without defect, without blemish. Once again, showing that the sacrifice we need must be perfect, must be righteous, must be sinless. And one of the goats would then be what we call a scapegoat. The priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat, And that would symbolize the transference or the imputation of the sins of the people to this goat. And then that goat would be sent away from the camp, away from the people. And that was a picture of Christ, of of our sins being imputed to Christ and Christ taking those sins away from us. The other goat would be slain as a sacrifice, both were illustrations, were foreshadowings, uh, illustrations of Christ's atoning work. See, friends, the Old Testament scriptures all testified of Christ. 
But Jesus closes his defense in this chapter by honing in on the witness of Moses. See, the Jewish leaders loved Moses, but only because they thought that they were able to uphold, to to keep the demands of the law of Moses. So Jesus continues in verses 45 to 47. He says to them, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? These men were condemned because the one in whom they had so much reverence, so much respect for, testified against them. We've seen that in, in the, uh, the first five books of the Bible, which were written by Moses, they, they very clearly speak of Christ. Through these, these five books, we see Jesus, uh, w- w- these were all written by Moses, by the way. The first five books of the Bible were all written by Moses. And in those five books, we see Jesus even in the first prophecy, which is given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That's the, the promise of the woman's seed. We see him in the types and shadows. We see him in the ceremonies. And thus, the testimony of this man whom they, uh, they, they so greatly respected and revered, Moses, condemned them. It condemned the scribes and the Pharisees because the law that God gave through Moses and the promise of the gospel that God gave through Moses left them with no excuse for their refusal to come to Christ that they might have life. And the same law, friends, the same law that condemned these scribes and Pharisees condemns us today as well, unless we do what the scribes and the Pharisees refuse to do. And that is to come to Jesus that we may have eternal life, finding it in him alone. See, there are two paths to righteousness. You can have your own personal obedience or you can have the imputed obedience of Christ. The reality is that first road is already closed for you. You've already sinned. Your only hope is the imputed righteousness of Christ. That will lead you to eternal life. Friends, I don't know your hearts I don't pretend to know what your attitude is when you come to church or when you search the scriptures, but I do know this. I know that God knows. God knows what your attitude is. And so my plea to you today is that you would examine yourselves in light of the reasons that Jesus has outlined in this passage explaining why these men refuse to believe and make sure that isn't you. Make sure that's not you. My plea and my prayer for you is that you would come to Scripture, to God's Word, humbly. That that you would come with a desire to see Christ in the Scriptures and to know Him personally. And that you would come with a desire to be challenged, a desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. And all of this, not as an end in and of itself, but as a means to an end. That being of gaining eternal life by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ alone and glorifying him with every aspect of your life. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, thank you for the grace that is found only in Christ. Father, teach us to see him in the scriptures and to not only see him, but to receive him, to believe in him, to put faith in him. Lord, break us away from things that we might view as an end in and of themselves that only lead to us being prideful, that feed our desire to be approved of by people. 
Break us, wean us of every desire other than knowing and loving and believing in Christ as we come to your word. We recognize, Lord, that we, we fall short, that there are times when our motives are impure, but we thank you for the grace that covers even that sin. And not only the grace that covers that sin, but the grace that teaches us the sinfulness of any other approach, any other motive, any other attitude, and changes us so that we may come not because of what our flesh desires, but because of what you desire when we come to your word. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be transformed and that your word would be taking effect in our hearts even now that we would be conformed to the likeness of Christ, that we may believe in him, claim him as our own, and us as his, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for his glory alone. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.